Spirituality Challenged is a podcast recorded on Canadian Treaty 1 territory, and that the land on which we gather is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Diné people, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. We acknowledge that our water is sourced from Shoal Lake 41st Nation, which is located on Treaty 3 territory. Spirituality Challenged respects the spirit and intent of treaties and treaty making and are open to future partnerships with First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people in the spirit of truth, reconciliation, and collaboration. This episode is dedicated to my grandmother Blanche, who passed away on November 10th, 2023. She was loved by her community of neighbors in downtown Winnipeg, St. Vital, St. River, and Winnipeg's Southeast Personal Care Home where she comfortably took her last breath. She was a mother to three boys, including my dad, a great storyteller, a fantastic writer, and an actor at Winnipeg Fringe until around 2010. She has also been an avid supporter of me as a music composer, hip-hop artist, video game enthusiast, and web and graphic designer. She would always tell me that I'm going to make it someday, and hopefully through this podcast she's right, and that her spirit will be proud of what I've recorded. Rest in peace, Grandma. I love you very much. On March 5th, 2004, after telling my parents I would take the faith they raised me with a little more seriously, mom knew I needed some friends to be with who also believed in God. So she recommended me and my only high school friend Paul, who stuck with me in my troubled youth, check out this church called 725. The church building was built specifically for young people. It had a canteen with big TV screens on it, two basketball cages, a few pool tables, and some arcade stations to play Nintendo. They held church services for teens on Friday nights and services for junior high kids on Wednesday nights. The services I went to for the next few years were college services for university-aged students between 18 and 30. Why was it called 725? Because this church's youth building was located at 725 Lajimodier Boulevard on the east side of Winnipeg. The building's main auditorium was able to seat around three to 500 people, and they had a revolving stage with a smoke machine, strobe lights, and two giant screens that would display the lyrics of Hillsong worship hits we would be singing. Every Saturday night until around 2010, young adult Christians from all over the city of Winnipeg would come out to this hoppin' party to avoid getting drugged, drunk, or slapping skins at a random friend's house or a nightclub to tell Jesus they were living for his truth, shouting out loud over a headbanging jam, or swaying slowly to a ballad expressing how much they loved him more than life itself. And after the young folks were tired and spiritually filled, they all sat down on soft seats that felt like a lazy boy chair to see the two-minute ads plugging what this big flashy megachurch was doing in their main services on Wednesdays and Sundays before a very built muscular pastor with ripped jeans, a dark green t-shirt, glasses, a slick sport coat, and a short beard came up to the stage to speak. He would give a sermon about how we had to preach the gospel to people who weren't saved that wanted to get close to us. He would encourage us to be a Christian example in the way we worked and the way we did our studies in college. He would tell us to avoid having a beer and for young men to stop looking at the waitresses with the low-cut top after we left church to go eat at a restaurant. He would tell young women to guard their hearts until they're ready to court the man God called to be her husband. And he'd tell you that if you did all these things right, God would bless you with a good job, a good spouse, and even went as far to say that you would experience heaven on earth. The first time I heard this funny pastor, he focused on lust, a topic that resonated with me since I wasn't over my high school crush. He would tell men to avoid lust by saying weird things like, Dear God, I just pray for my mom right now, whenever they felt like masturbating or getting into bed with someone before they were married. He would encourage us to concentrate on Bible studies we had, doing good work or schooling for God's glory, and to keep our minds pure. And at the end, he led us through a prayer. I had prayed this prayer already before coming to this church, but I listened to this muscular pastor become a serious teddy bear, ready to lead whoever raised their hand through something called the sinner's prayer. 
and it went something like this. Father, in Jesus' name, I give you my life. Forgive me for what I've done in the past. I accept you. I believe you lived and you died for me. Be my Lord and be my Savior. From today and on, I want to serve you. But that wasn't what was on my mind that day. I wanted to play pool. I wanted to talk to the tall blonde girl sitting three seats away from me and to try a Nintendo game and some food they had in the canteen. Before we enjoyed that game of pool, flirted with a few random beautiful girls in really nice clothing, and tried a basketball match in one of the cages, my friend Paul leaned in and he whispered in my ear the question that set me on this long, rough journey. Is this a cult? Is this a cult? Is this a cult? Is this a... If you live in Winnipeg and you're listening to this, you probably know where this is going. This episode is going to unpack the faith behind Springs Church. It's no surprise that, with the turbulent media attention that evangelicalism has been getting since the 90s, along with recent seasons of Stranger Things and shows like The Tiger King during the pandemic, cults and zealous Christian groups have become a subject of great interest around the world. What is a cult, and what makes cults so interesting to us these days? Is it the numerous scary B-movies that have been coming out on Tubi constantly? Is it the fact that Donald Trump left his Presbyterian heritage to become a non-denominational Christian? Is it because you're confused when your friend says things like, don't be unequally yoked, or asks you are you saved, or gets you to find your center, or tries to measure your personal chi? When you think about it, dear listener, we all receive subliminal messages that target what's in our crocodile brains every single day, whether it's a good sale on shoes at the store, why we need to see the latest Marvel movie, or what sparks a desire to go to Jamaica for a vacation. We're all influenced by things that we see every day, whether we're conscious about absorbing those messages or not. Thinking about influence as a whole, there is no firm definition of what a cult actually is. Sure, it's got certain red flags on a long checklist such as a charismatic leader, exploitation through sexuality and finances, and a firm coded language that separates insiders and outsiders. The word cult is used by dominant groups to attack minority groups with a belief system that is not considered normal. Plus popular culture that started in the 60s, they like to make us think of cults as people with long robes who brainwash with special machines or mind control techniques or subliminal messages on records. The first thing most people think of is the Manson murders and Jonestown massacres. But with Springs, things are different. Now outlining if a church is a cult or not is one thing, but what is this kind of church that we're talking about? What do we call a spiritual ideology that is full of flash and Gucci glamour? Well, many folks in more uptight Christian circles, they call this the health and wealth name it claim it movement. But at Springs, most of the miracles are centered around finances. So the more appropriate name for the ideology of a church like Springs is the prosperity gospel. But considering the subject matter of this podcast, we're going to call this by its official name, the Word of Faith Movement. The Word of Faith Movement is hard to follow because every so-called non-denominational church, they operate with their own unique set of values. One church calls traditional and progressive Christianity a prison. Another church focuses on giving advice like a grandfather. Another focuses on helping its members find emotional healing. That being said, most Word of Faith movement members have actually stopped doing these kind of things as of 2020, and they've decided to do these kind of things. Number one, believe in COVID conspiracy theories, stop wearing masks, and defy lockdown restrictions. B, support Donald Trump or Pierre Polyevre. Or C, blame Antifa or the media when asked about January 6th, the Freedom Convoy, or Christian nationalism. But why? You know, in order to figure this out, we have to go back to where it all started. 
So let's take a trip back to the 18th century, where we'll go on a quest to understand the mindset of the Founding Fathers. The 18th century is considered the Age of Enlightenment. It was a period when artists, statesmen, philosophers, and merchants began to question the role of the church, politics of the state, and other ethical questions about society in general. These men studied thought leaders and writers of the day like John Locke, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and Thomas Hobbes. They came up with new political concepts as separation of powers, limited government, social contracts, and the consent of the governed. Locke's writings were very influential during this time, and his books helped leaders to raise questions about the overreach of British government and rights of the governed. They formed a quote-unquote Republican ideology that spoke truth to power that they labeled as tyrants. On the religious side of things, thanks to John Adams and Benjamin Franklin, enlightened thinking and reason were fused with the teachings of Presbyterians and the Puritans, which simply put, indicated all men are created equal, and that a king has no divine rights unless he's Jesus Christ. Together, these innovative ways of thinking allowed Christians to name and claim the right to freedom and the pursuit of happiness. Happiness defined was the limitless gathering of riches from the new world, and these riches will not be taxed at all. After all, they worked hard for those riches, right? And what was the most prized and valuable possession at the time? It was uncolonized pieces of indigenous land, untouched by Christians for the taking. According to author and religious professor Kate Bowler, the Word of Faith movement centers around a sought-after Christian message of spiritual, financial, and physical mastery that produced some of the largest churches in the world. And what could be more pragmatic, individualist, and more upwardly mobile without the government than big spiritual organizations that keep a community together by preaching its enlightened conservatism? Some of the most powerful attendees in the movement are rich oil executives, government officials, ironically, and corporate board members who often have deep connections to the far right. They continually help and even secretly shape the American evangelical Christian landscape. Now, these leaders are different than your average young Sheldon's pastor, Jeff. While they had the basic values of personal responsibility without the government, a resilient Protestant work ethic, and enough money and privilege to bring the saving message of Jesus to their entire communities, they needed a hook to bring droves of people into their services. These leaders realize that the self-improvement industry revolved around these five needs. Good relationships, or shall we say good complementarian marriages, wealth, and spiritual, mental, and physical health. And the pastors and leaders didn't just pray for these things with needy congregants in the church. We have to remember, if that's all the pastors did, the congregation would depend on them completely to channel divine power. The pastors instead decided that there had to be what I call name it and claim it classes. While many miracles were performed in the Bible, the technique of manifestation isn't actually 100% biblical. Typically, prayer is considered a connection to the divine, where we become self-aware of how weak we are in comparison to God. But most people when they pray, they pray for something out of a selfish desire that they want to manifest. And pastors associated with the Word of Faith movement took advantage of that individual need for manifestation and taught their congregation and donors that the most powerful prayers actually compel the supernatural to produce the desires that they deeply believe are theirs. The late senior pastor of Springs, Leon Fontaine, encouraged his congregation to stop trying and get results. And he didn't just do it by preaching a balance between a healthy but hard work ethic and manifestation. Like many Word of Faith leaders, he taught his followers to manipulate the spiritual planes through the interior world of thought, imagination, meditation, and prayer. The acceptable results, in the end, would be a physical manifestation of what was moved in the spirit realm. The advanced form of this kind of Christian prayer 
taught in separate classes outside of services is actually an appropriated self-improvement practice from something called New Thought. In the Gilded Age after the Civil War, the Industrial Revolution kicked off. When asked about the progressive potential of the human race due to these conditions, most of Victorian America was confident and excited. This confidence helped to form trending ideas of Christian science, the power of the mind, and Freemasonry. Self-improvement became an art form through athletic endurance and accumulation of knowledge. Results of solving problems back then were based on existing conditions instead of rules and theories that were already determined. The more individual and novel a person was, the more they were celebrated. The first New Thought maxims developed from theories of correspondence, philosophical idealism, universal spiritual laws, and other writings exploring metaphysical speculation. Now, you're probably wondering, what the heck are all these things? Dear listener, I get it. What you really want to know is what kicked New Thought into the ideology that made the Word of Faith movement as big as it is today in the largest churches in the world. Well, there are individuals and many ways of thinking involved in the shaping of New Thought today, but let me introduce you to a man by the name of Phineas Quimby. One day, Mr. Quimby was tired of struggling with symptoms of tuberculosis. He needed some fresh air, so he took a country ride in his carriage, and his horse started to gallop faster and faster down the road. The carriage ride led to chaos, and for some reason, Quimby's horse went completely berserk. The carriage tipped, causing Quimby to fall out, forcing him to hold on to any part of the carriage he could while running at the same pace as the speeding horse. All we know is that after Quimby stopped running, his symptoms of tuberculosis were relieved. Quimby concluded from this traumatic event that the mind could overcome disease. Soon, he traveled across the states, preaching the idea that disease came from negative thinking. His sermons soon inspired Mary Baker Eddy, who eventually found the Christian science movement that eventually concluded that the entire world was an illusion, just like the Matrix. New Thought tells us that negative mindsets and bad attitudes could make you physically sick. Today, it has evolved into what's commonly known as positive thinking. In other words, if you thought negative, if you were a grouch around other people, or lacked confidence and self-esteem, you were doomed to poverty, failure, and marginalization, not just sickness. It all comes down to how you think about yourself and the world around you. And in Word of Faith classes for 20-somethings known as Master's Commission, young Christians were taught to control their thoughts while spiritually bypassing struggle, sickness, and everyday problems with positivity and optimism. If you thought positive, you gain privilege, freedom, and independence, the components that make up life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In 2021, students at Springs College, formerly Springs Master's Commission, celebrated their graduation ceremony without masks indoors or social distancing. Winnipeg's progressive Christians and smaller churches of other denominations found pictures of the event on Springs' Instagram and Facebook accounts, which went viral, prompting an immediate investigation from Justice Minister Cameron Friesen. Even though Pastor Leon shared his stance on the pandemic with Winnipeg beforehand back in December 2020, when Springs held services in the cold parking lots with congregants worshipping God in their cars. We at Springs Church call upon the Manitoba government to stop the spread of COVID-19 while upholding the charter rights of Manitobans. I'm Leon Fontaine, the senior pastor of Springs Church. Today, I'm releasing the following statement regarding the decision of the government of Manitoba to prevent Manitobans from practicing their faith while remaining in their cars with their windows rolled up. COVID-19 presents a serious threat to the health and economy of our province. We all have a role to play in combating the spread of COVID-19, which is why our church has complied with every public health rule the government has put forward to bend the curve. We also know that many people are struggling with the many challenges that accompany COVID-19 lockdowns. 
This is why our church has worked diligently to find innovative ways to support the needs of our community while complying with government advice on stopping the spread of COVID-19. These range from curbside grocery pickup for hurting families to drive-in worship services. The government has established rules which prohibit people from gathering with people who aren't members of their household. They have deemed these rules sufficient to keep people safe as they drive to the liquor, cannabis, or big box retail store, park their car, and enter those facilities. If this is the case, we have to ask ourselves why the government has deemed it unsafe for Manitobans to drive to their place of worship with their windows rolled up for the entirety of a service and practice their faith. We believe this is an oversight on the part of the government of Manitoba as other provinces across Canada have made accommodations for drive-in worship services while working to stop the spread of COVID-19. We've reached out to Minister Friesen to find a positive path forward to ensure our drive-in services continue to meet all rules related to preventing the spread of COVID-19, but our efforts in reaching a meaningful diplomatic solution have failed. As such, we will be challenging this ruling in court as we believe that Manitobans can have their right to practice their faith upheld while simultaneously upholding government COVID-19 prevention rules. We hope to work with the government, not at cross purposes in this regard. Today, as a government asks Manitobans to have faith in their ability to manage the spread of COVID-19, we ask them to work with us to help Manitobans practice their faith. In response to Leon's press release, Reverend Eric Parker, known as the Millennial Pastor, penned an open letter to Pastor Leon and Springs Church that multiple clergy in Winnipeg signed and sent to them. I'm not going to read the whole letter, but I do want to highlight something interesting that he wrote. Much of the rhetoric coming from Springs Church centers on the right of Christians to worship under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The question of how the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is weighed against these public health orders has not been settled in court. However, we are not writing to you regarding the epidemiology or legality of drive-in services. We are writing to you as peers and siblings in Christ. We find that your insistence on the right to worship is not in keeping with Christ's command to love our neighbor. We find that your insistence on individual freedoms over collective responsibility are an affront to the many individuals, families, friends, community groups, and other faith communities who are refraining from gathering for the sake of our neighbors. We find that your focus on your own perceived loss of not being able to gather for a short time to be offensive to those Manitoban families who have lost loved ones as a result of this pandemic. Reverend Parker, like most Christians in Winnipeg, believed that true Christianity involves the collective responsibility to protect the entire city of Winnipeg from spreading COVID. Unfortunately, when a church has been drowned in a sea of new thought for decades, it sees this kind of collectivist thinking as negative towards their subjective view of freedom and independence. Most churches' thinking in Winnipeg became a threat to what spring sees as thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But in a way, members and leadership are somewhat but not entirely wrong about how slightly draconian the restrictions were in Manitoba during that lonely Christmas of 2020. They voiced concerns of poor spiritual and emotional health from not being able to gather in person. Older and single folks needed to be with people to get through lonely winters and Christmas gatherings with less than a dozen people. While productivity was up for certain industries, the nostalgia of company staff socializing around a coffee table was gone. It's difficult to homeschool while both parents have to work. Churches didn't feel God through Zoom or Facebook sermon live streams. All that being said, what I still don't understand is that most people from Springs are rich enough to have savings to get through working from home. They had many options for starting side hustles online with their self-reliance. The parents that could homeschool had a great option for keeping kids safe from woke values. 
Along with those lines, small co-ops of kids within legal gathering numbers could still get together and play. And some of Spring's members may have hoarded tons of food before March 2020 with an opportunity to share with their neighbors, which some of them actually did. Part of the problem is that even though Romans 13 claims that Christians should obey the government, it goes against conservative New Thought principles. To more extreme Christians in Winnipeg, God never placed Mayor Brian Bowman or Premier Brian Palliser in their offices of government, just like God never placed Britain as tax collectors over America centuries ago. Who did the government think they were, telling congregants from Springs to stay in their cars to worship God while they can still enter Walmart with a mask on? Who did the government think they were, to tell a church with massive influence over the Winnipeg economy to change their business practices while disregarding the safety of those who don't subscribe to New Thought, their flavor of positive thinking, or their definition of freedom for them and not freedom for the rest of Winnipeg? The big question to ask here is if Leon is really concerned about the hypocrisy of government regulations mentioned in his press release, or is he beyond certain that this is a battle between angels of new thought and the demons of dark government principalities? Dear listener, there are lots of threads to explore, and some of those threads may lead to extreme anger, outrage, and even hopelessness and confusion. There is going to be a risk of me sounding like a reductionist and leaving out quite a bit of information. But now that we saw the origins of the Word of Faith movement, I need you to stick with me, dear listener, if you can. We're going to take a fast trip through the progression of new thought into what it's become as Spring's ideology today. The late 1800s and the Industrial Revolution saw New Thought and Christian Science bleed into revivalist early Pentecostal Christianity. Pastor E.W. Kenyon encouraged Christians to use their faith and mind to shape their circumstances into what they felt was God's will. To Kenyon, Christianity wasn't just talk or humble prayers, but loud, vocal, aggressive prayers of faith with power to override negative thoughts and circumstances from the devil Satan. John Wesley claimed Christians could pray against temptation which would stop them from giving in to sin. Fred F. Bosworth was one of the first healing evangelists, holding tent revival meetings in Canada and the United States, delivering the sermons of right thinking and divine health. Then came preachers like Smith Wigglesworth, Amy Semple McPherson, and Charles Fox Parnum in the first half of the 20th century, a time of two world wars, the Roaring Twenties, and the Great Depression. During this time, most of American culture turned to religious solutions to solve issues with the economy. It started with a desire for Christian sanction over what was already owned, but some believers wanted more than that. But what was common is a religious language of desire. The desire was a deep longing coupled with the comfort that God had control over both the supernatural and the mundane in their lives. While New Thought leaders, Christian scientists, and Pentecostals called for faith, zealous prayer, positive thinking, and surrender to God, many people wanted to see similar principles affect their finances. What they were after, according to the industrialist Andrew Carnegie, was a gospel of wealth. During this time, in the late 19th century, everyone wondered, what would Jesus do when it came to the widening wealth gap between the rich and the poor in the Gilded Age? How would Christians like Walter Rackenbush sort out money with their social gospels? What would William and Catherine Booth, along with the Salvation Army, do when it comes to Christian solutions to the ever-increasing ranks of the poor in growing urban areas? Some Christians were conflicted on the matter. Other believers, even back then, stated thoughts and prayers were the answer to solving immigration and industrialism. But some Protestants completely identified Christianity with America's good fortune, and they turned to pastors like Russell Conwell. Conwell was a Baptist minister and lawyer who eventually became a prophet of what was called the Wealth Gospel after giving a famous sermon called Acres of Diamonds. 
I say that you ought to get rich, and it is our duty to get rich. How many of my pious brethren say to me, do you, a Christian minister, spend your time going up and down the country advising young people to get rich, to get money? Yes, of course I do, I reply. They say, isn't that awful? Why don't you preach the gospel instead of preaching about man's making money? Because to me, to work hard and to make money honestly is to preach the gospel. That is the reason. The sermon promised listeners that wealth lay within any American's grasp, if they would only accept their Christian duty to work hard and see God's hand through the workings of capitalism. Conwell used the Calvinist theology he grew up with by adapting his teachings to be relevant to what was going on in the growing economy. He preached that poverty was sin and riches indicated virtue. He created a gospel of fusion between fiscal and theological optimism with a high view of human perfectibility as a foundation, but this preaching lacked potent words or focus on inner divinity. Conwell preached the American virtues of pragmatism, self-reliance, and innovation as the way. It was well received by the nation's first millionaires and billionaires. These groups shared the mythical secret that brought Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller to the top and were celebrated as a bedrock of the American muscular Christianity, emphasizing manly exploit and a willingness to seek what was hidden. This conservative gospel put action over abstraction, and it made money and finances a moral class issue. The American dream was not only based on who had heaped the most treasures, but who had all the virtues and new thought skills to earn those treasures. But for many Americans, however, work itself wasn't enough. They craved assistance from the divine to become special and exceptional. New thought started out as a prescription for healing, but its vision focused on mystical alignment with whatever desires and growth the universe, God, or the divine could manifest. New Thought and the most popular Christian Gospels eventually became synonymous with prosperity. The Gospel of Wealth emphasized prosperity through the roaring 1920s, while other groups flocked to theosophy and early progressive Christianity. As Americans endured a new normal after World War I, large combinations of big business, consumerism, and new wealth rewarded the richest entrepreneurs, and churches modeled these big businesses while congregations turned to a gospel that taught how capitalism, the Protestant work ethic, wealth, and devotion all worked together to manifest blessing in the life of the proletariat. Unfortunately, the economic collapse of the Great Depression had many congregations doubting if this gospel of wealth could work. Despite the struggle being so real, many followers were still attracted to Billy Sunday, Dale Carnegie and Napoleon Hill as they publish books and sermons to help anyone achieve the good life. Hold your thoughts on money by concentration or fixation of attention with your eyes closed until you can actually see the physical appearance of the money. Do this at least once a day. If you repeat instructions to the unconscious mind, you will develop the faith to move mountains. Dale Carnegie's line of thinking, along with how to win friends and influence people, kept on shaping Depression-era Protestantism. Results fluctuated amongst congregants, but the combination was solid. Christianity and commerce became one, as believers read their own religious fortunes based on how the times changed. After World War II was declared, the United States turned to a fiscal powerhouse. Factories churned out millions of weapons, navy ships, planes, and tanks. Unemployed men were handed uniforms and shipped overseas to fight for their country. People were concerned that after the war, a new depression would happen, not just because of funding for the war, but because men would have PTSD post-victory or loss. But the opposite happened. The economy boomed, cementing the nation's largest middle class in the 1950s. Good health required fewer miracles, as polio and tuberculosis were cured because of vaccines. New storefronts attracted businesses, and television entered the family dining room. During this time, the rise of the neo-evangelicals occurred. New Thought became positive thinking centered around financial prosperity, which then bled into Pentecostal churches. Positive thinking helped church attendees secure God's blessings, and this new gospel fused multiple religious elements which transcended racial and denominational lines. According to Kate Bowler again, the sectarian cast of mind power had long since faded and softened sharp lines drawn between Pentecostalism. 
New Thought branched out into secular institutions and took many forms such as self-help, success literature, popular psychology, faith cure or mind cure. All these things became different sets of tools to solve today's problems. From wealth and health, or even a need for divine power, the needs became a consumable product from God to the believer through prayer, placebos, the power of suggestion, or meditation used to activate the divine's hidden powers. This new type of thinking twisted Christian notions of spiritual power, remaking the gospel into a tool for achieving health and wealth. And this same message infiltrated philosophy, psychology, sociology, and overtook many religious institutions with the most members, including Springs Church. Founded in 1980, Springs of Living Water Center was formed to spread the gospel of Jesus with an acronym of LAF, L-A-F, Love, Acceptance, and Forgiveness, which is pretty much the religious version of Live, Laugh, and Love. They started out with a small congregation growing to 300 people just a few blocks north of the St. Anne's and St. Mary's intersection in St. Vital, Winnipeg. While I couldn't find out who originally found the church, and there was no mention of who the original pastors were during my time there, Saskatchewan power couple Leon and Sally Fontaine became senior pastors at Springs Church in 1994. With Leon's dynamic sermons on Canadian exceptionalism that came from being blessed, fortunate, and to be envied, the church had gone through unprecedented growth. The congregants were hooked on Leon's sermons that included picking a fight for Jesus and influencing the marketplace. People from around the city and beyond, including my parents, would pay for Leon's recordings and even give money after seeing unexplained miracles manifest in their own lives. But the church grew because of the richest and most influential Winnipeg Christians attending in the mid to late 90s. The massive growth led Springs to acquire new land on La Jemodier on the east side of Winnipeg on the Trans-Canada Highway as well as a church in the inner city, which I actually loved to volunteer at when I was a Christian. And what messages did Leon preach? He preached unprecedented growth of health, wealth, self-esteem, and marriage with the cross of Jesus Christ as a hood ornament. In 2009, after volunteering at Calvary Temple and working at Convergis, I left Winnipeg for college in Brandon, Manitoba, at age 25, I still retained the positive beliefs I learned at Master's Commission that God was going to give me a good job and a beautiful wife from the heartland of Western Manitoba. I did fall in love. I got a job in downtown Winnipeg after graduation. But even as I worked and I was married, I knew something was wrong. I worked hard but I wasn't making enough to support the two of us. Despite being madly in love, my wife and I had argued a lot about positive thinking and how God actually worked in our lives. Our marriage almost fell apart and I lost my job in 2014. I became a freelance app flipper until 2018 while working odd jobs in other call centers. My wife worked at the credit union while my app business tanked. We bought a house and in a couple of years she broke down because of how demanding her own job was and we had to sell our house and pay the penalty for the mortgage. I injured my back while heavy lifting during that time as well, and we both quit everything and moved into my parents' basement shortly before the pandemic. Through it all, I still clung to Jesus and tried to hold on to my faith, even while it was deconstructing little by little. I still had this feeling that God was going to bless us with life and life more abundantly, while struggling with the demons of poverty, marginalization, and laziness that was stealing, killing, and destroying our lives. When it was safe to travel again in 2020, my aunt, a retired dentist, paid for us to travel to Oshawa to help her move out of her Ritson Road mansion to a smaller place in Vancouver. When we got to the GTA, we were in over our heads. After her husband passed away, all the rooms filled with useless hoarded possessions. We're talking TVs from the 80s, toothpaste from the 90s, lots of name brand clothing, pool tables, old furniture, VCRs, projectors, you name it, my uncle had five of these things. 
and they were all given to my aunt, who didn't even care what my uncle bought and accumulated for decades. She was overwhelmed, even with his investment in real estate, gold and silver. She had no idea how to use Facebook Marketplace to get rid of all the random knickknacks lying around the house. So my wife, my parents and I, we helped her to sell as much of the small to medium sized ticket items as possible. As I looked through what we were selling, I had so many questions about the life I wanted in the past. What was the point? What was the point of going to school, getting good grades, getting a good job, having children, and investing in financial assets like a house or a car when they would only go to someone else after we die? What's the point of having certain things that we only use once and then give away? And besides giving money to other people or the poor, why spend money on luxury vacations that only last a week and eventually give you a sadness or a desire to do it all again after feeling burnt out from our mundane jobs? These thoughts, along with the selfishness of my past Christian friends to get back to normal, only accelerated my deconstruction, eventually causing my wife and I to both lose our faith in evangelicalism and for me to have a deep loathing for new thought and pop psychology. Because I saw for myself in the summer of 2020, the actual results of new thought spirituality. I remember reading a book I found amongst my uncle's belongings. While my aunt still kept books from Napoleon Hill, my uncle paid full price for The Secret in the mid-2000s. After reading through the book, I saw very quickly how pastors at Springs found a way to blend new thought into many of their sermons. I also discovered that a kind of narcissism is bred when reading self-help books, which a lot of the successful friends I used to have at Springs always did. I found that when people read stuff by Tony Robbins, Eckhart Tolle, or Stephen Covey, their ideas are used to harass, ridicule, and abuse other people. They use positive thinking to rationalize their own selfishness and unpleasant behavior, all while reinforcing destructive values of consumption, personal responsibility, and endless growth. There's a reason New Thought is also called self-help. It's because in order to help yourself successfully, you need to be selfish. One of the problems with self-help new thought is that people who are into it don't use books or sermons to manifest their own happiness. An individual or a groupthink uses new thought or the prosperity gospel to become more powerful, blessed, or privileged than everyone else. I myself as an autistic wanted to be better than who I truly was and better than everyone that I knew. But after visiting my aunt, I realized that I was the bad guy, trying to get ahead of all the other bad guys that I knew. The second problem in relation to the first is that we all think we're special. We're all trying to manifest or work hard for something better because we don't want to be average. And the problem with that is that if we all actually became exceptional, then no one becomes exceptional at all. And in the long term, that breeds constant problems that can never be solved. And one of those problems is never feeling good enough. We're all our own personal critic, and most people who get out of new thought or self-help build enough self-awareness to figure out how much they truly love or hate themselves. The third issue is that there's always money involved when trying to learn what the real secret is. Most people are willing to pay to figure out the true secret to a better life. Many people think it's found in self-help, but they don't know that it's actually new thought. And usually the answer gurus or pastors like Leon give are all the same. Work hard, be positive, don't give up, plan, execute, pray to God, ignore or stay away from people who have negative vibes, write or recite affirmations every day, don't doom scroll on social media, remove distractions, and follow the formulas they give you after investing thousands into their empty programs or investing into multiple books that they recommend for you to read. If this information was all free, the economy would collapse because everyone would figure out what I'm telling you in this episode. And while white privilege and class plays a very high factor into whether or not new thought works for an individual or not, 
Its ideology is preached to everyone in some way, shape, or form. New Thought isn't critiqued because it can be found in movies, books, school curriculums, and even today's media. And speaking of today's media, Oprah pushes this kind of stuff. But the news screams about the dangers of misinformation, all while leaving the ideology of New Thought and Christian Science off the table. And of course, with all the crazy things happening around us, people do need happy thoughts and a break from reality. It's like that dude said on Everything Everywhere All at Once. When he chose to see the good side of things, he's not being naive. It's strategic and necessary. It's how he learned to survive through everything. And of course it is good for your mental health, but this kind of thinking is not good as a long-term solution to get over the things that you struggle with in your life because it aligns with the tenets of necrocapitalism, which is a systematic issue. A large portion of Americans routinely use optimism and positivity to silence someone else for daring to express their own struggles. I know because I used to do it while fighting with my wife. People from Springs that I've talked to in the past use positive thinking to shut down conversations about crucial topics like not being paid enough money. They use it to tone down criticism and dissent when it comes to being confronted by coworkers or church volunteers or supervisors. I remember calling my wife negative while we were dating for trying to raise awareness about injustice among women, because Springs told me that giving attention to certain problems only makes those problems worse. And now with all the misinformation out there, QAnon conspiracies, Agenda 2030 and stuff like the Great Replacement Theory or the Great Reset, it's so easy to convince someone to kill their conscience in the reckless pursuit of pleasure and comfort. And it certainly feels like New Thought today is telling us that if the world is burning, it doesn't matter. Go start that side hustle. Go take your vacation in Hawaii. Manifest your own little safe space where the Middle Eastern war will have no impact on you. Live for today. Live for the moment, even if your freedom to choose will have no impact on anyone else, because consequences don't matter. If you happen to get someone else sick with COVID, it's really their fault because they wanted it to happen. And this is how Springs responded to anyone who challenged the rebellion against COVID restrictions. And I don't know if what they did in the past has stunted their growth of future church membership or not. It's so easy to justify indifference and apathy in the face of everything New Thought helped to build since the civil war amongst corporate greed. We're told now not to talk about or even care about the negative effects of new thought. We're told that we're believing lies when we choose to read or share certain sources and media online while trying to think and sort through life for ourselves. New thought is a way to regulate our positive vibes by closing your eyes, doing the thoughts and prayers thing, and putting positive thoughts out into the universe. And we need to tell everyone we know that they need to do the same kind of manifesting, healing, or controlling of other negative people. But in reality, it's hurting us. It's not helping us. It's not helping at all because every single person into this kind of thinking just wants to get ahead of everyone else. And this need for self-actualized survival is only slowing our progress as a functioning society down. Is there a better secret? Only time will tell. But looking back, I learned something while volunteering at Springs Inner City. Amongst the mundane tasks of working the cheap analog soundboard, removing dead mice from the basement of the old building on Burroughs Avenue, and preparing food banks for the homeless and broke people that came in the doors twice a week, I had one very impactful incident in the North End while inviting kids to Sunday school. One day there was a little girl that was bullied by two tougher looking kids. They threatened to beat her up when my friend and I almost walked past them. The poor little girl started to cry. We turned around, 
and she told us that she was being tormented because she couldn't afford the things that other kids have. My friend and I sat there, and we listened to her vent. We eventually prayed for her right there, which, looking back, caused me to wish I had talked to her parents instead. But I learned more than anything that at the very least, we need to listen to each other. And by that I mean really listen, without interrupting, without giving our own input, without giving our advice, just listen. We have to listen to people no matter where they came from and no matter what experiences they had. We need to do this instead of giving people solutions when deep down they don't even desire to be fixed our way. When Springs opened up their inner city church, they were helpful with their resources, money and their time despite the teachings they gave to the indigenous people struggling in the worst part of the north end of Winnipeg. They sent kids home with food after Sunday school. They never preached before serving soup or giving food from Winnipeg Harvest to folks who needed it the most unlike Union Gospel Mission in Chinatown. When I volunteered with the inner city, we put people first before manifesting power and resources to grow the church. The image they present now is a focus on their vision of new thought rather than how God used to use them to help others. Speaking of helping others, I have this really odd suspicion that Springs is connected to the global alt-right and giving Dark money before Leon passed away. Here's a memory that got me thinking about this. While I was in Master's Commission, I took a job temporarily as an assistant custodian at the 595 Lajamodier location. During the Springs Christian Academy Spring Break in 2006, I was given access to the offices and elementary school rooms to clean during the day. The basic duties were vacuuming the floors, dusting off exposed surfaces, mopping the classroom floors, and emptying garbage. Standard stuff, nothing too hard. After getting most of the classrooms all cleaned up, I was able to do my cleaning duties in all the pastors and church leaders' offices, including Pastor Leon's mother, Pastor Jackie's office. But I felt like my job wasn't completely done. I think I missed Pastor Leon's office. After wandering the halls a bit, I found an area of the church that most of the public is not aware of. It was a slightly open concept area connected to a low traffic hallway. The area had an enclosed living room setup with three couches and two pillars holding up a low roof between the couches. The couches themselves faced a set of double doors. I don't remember much else in that area, other than the fact that it was well maintained, but it looked very intimidating to walk into. So I decided to vacuum in that living room area, dust off the tables in the room, and then, when I proceeded to open the doors to do the room inside, I heard my name. Aaron, get away from the door! I jumped because my supervisor was right beside me when he yelled that. He escorted me to the break room, and on the way he told me he'll clean the room later and that my afternoon duties were to wax the floors of one of the classrooms later in my shift. I quit shortly after spring break, but that was mostly because somehow I got high off the floor wax. Now that being said, this story has made me ask so many questions about the church ever since that day. What the hell was in that room that I wasn't supposed to see, let alone clean? Why was I able to access all the other rooms, but not that one? Were those couches a meeting area or a lobby for people who were to meet with Leon personally? And more importantly, who goes in and what goes on in that room? Part of me believes that Pastor Leon and some of the other pastors and leaders at Springs have connections to some pretty big shady figures that they don't want Winnipeg to know about. If he gets preaching material from Joel Osteen and Jesse Duplantis while having leadership training from John Maxwell, who's he also connected to? Paula White Kane? Sean Foyt? Brian Houston? I know personally he's connected to Winnipeg government officials like Audrey Gordon and ex-mayor Sam Katz as Katz walked in with Leon in one of our master's commission sessions. 
I mean, would he also be connected to Candace Bergen, Pierre Polyev, Stephen Harper, Stockwell Day? And would the connections go deeper? Would he have ties to the Heritage Foundation? Would he be connected to the Alliance for Defending Freedom? Or worse, Turning Point USA? Who knows? The point is that there is a secret that is behind this room, and I believe everyone in media that is listening to this episode needs to figure out a way to investigate the secret behind this room, even with the architectural changes or any renovations that happened within the church after 2006. Because if a lowly janitor just doing his job is yelled at to get away from a door, there must be some really awful, dark, possibly even illegal activity that is being funded and hidden. And if word of it got out, it may change public opinion, not only about Springs, but about the Word of Faith movement as a whole, depending on how deep the rabbit hole goes. For anyone listening, I believe every single secret behind Springs Church needs to be exposed. It doesn't matter how it's done, via people protesting if another scandal comes up, an RCMP raid, or even exposure via a spy or private investigator, or frickin' David Wallace. It doesn't matter. Many Winnipeggers, including myself, are hurt and tired of what Springs has done to this city, and it's time someone with enough resources try to figure out what's going on there. I unfortunately am under-resourced to do that at this point, but I'll be happy if this podcast encourages others to get started. Emphasizing an understanding of what our community faces, as opposed to bringing light through positive thinking, would help bring the whole of Springs back to its inner city and 1980s roots. When someone's sad or deconstructing and a Christian tells them to think positively, realize you don't owe them anything. Let people go on about how the sky is falling or the fact that Galen Weston is raising food prices again. If you're a listening Christian, you don't have to cheer people up when they're in tears. You don't have to solve problems unless they ask for help. You don't have to preach or share scripture to them. In fact, I suggest you keep it to yourself because that's not what people want unless they ask for it. We can say God wants to listen and that every person has a God-shaped hole, even though I don't agree with that. And sure, most of them just want to be heard and have their hearts filled. But as a Christian, especially if you're from Springs, you have the ability to put people above yourself first. And you can actually do more than just listen. But what's being done right now, trying to impart new thought or whatever, it's not helpful in the long term. Beyond anything, it is much more life-giving to validate what people say and tell them they're not crazy. And looking back at my time in the inner city, that's one of the last things I said to people. Which leads me to the big reason why I lost my faith in evangelicalism and new thought. I find that most Christians, both progressive and conservative, privileged or not so privileged, who do listen and acknowledge truth spoken to power, they eventually don't do anything else besides sit around in prayer and try and manifest their own personal heaven onto people without deeply even knowing what the general population really wants. And they subconsciously do it, even though they mean well. And sadly, on the progressive side of things, Christians who do want to make a change, they aren't given enough power to help people to change both collectively, let alone individually. All the Christians I know, they, they look at their Bibles, but they take little account into history and how far technology and science progressed. While some believe that change happens when enough people get riled up to do something, they seem to get too comfortable or even too numb from all the bad news to get up and demand change. In truth, to see change, hard work and some kind of trouble and discomfort is needed during the process of making a better change in society for the better. And doing this kind of thing isn't easy, even if New Thought could actually play a good role in it. I don't know what the real secret is. But it's more than social justice. It's more than listening. It's more than thoughts and prayers. 
It's more than being positive. It's even more than just helping people where you can. And it's definitely more than subscribing to the Word of Faith movement. My guess is that part of the real secret is putting the collective society over the individual. This may require us to put New Thought in the trash can altogether. This may require us to not get into the Word of Faith movement. This may require us to listen more than to say, Oh, here, try this, it's going to solve your problems of health, wealth, and relationships. This may require us to proclaim solidarity with people who aren't like us. This may require us to actually truly give up our lives for others, which is what Jesus actually preached in John 15, 13. This may even require us not to have any money, and it may cause us to entertain ideas that seem similar to socialism, Marxism, and communism, even if those things aren't the best ideas. This may require the entire world to completely resist the root ideologies of the Founding Fathers of the United States. Think about it. From public sanitation, to civil rights, to the legalization of weed in Canada, the people didn't manifest what they needed. We the people got it by doing the very hard work of causing a ruckus both online and with boots on the ground because we wanted life to change, to progress for the better. I'll close with this thought. Freedom doesn't come from new thought or the manifestation of the things we want. Freedom is actually a perception. If you're only pushing freedom for the people within your family or the groups that you agree with, or even for yourself, you're actually pushing for privilege. If you're not satisfied with what you have in the present, in the future, you definitely won't be satisfied with what you want. The only true form of freedom, the only ethical form of freedom, is through self-limitation. If we start from here, maybe we'll discover the actual secret to improving our lives after all.